Welcome. You are listening to the Upper Room Podcast. For more information or to donate to this ministry, visit URFellowship.com. So today we are in um, part six, I think it is, of the Future You series. Uh, Beth Scheller will be here next week to wrap it up. We're going to be out of town. Um, we're going to Florida. It's going to be terrible. Um, but uh, today, I just want to go through the story of David and the Ark of the Covenant. And then um, at the end, I'm going to pull out some truths and some takeaways that pertain to future you from this portion of Scripture. Okay? So if you have your Bible, 2 Samuel chapter 6 is where we're going to be. And I'm just going to read the whole chapter. Okay? I could have cut it down, kind of picked a couple things not to read, but honestly, it's all good. So I'm just going to be reading for a bit, and there's going to be a point where you're going to be like, this is a lot. Uh, what am I supposed to do with all this? Uh, so I just say, just hang, hang on for the ride, uh, because sometimes you just have to read some Bible in church. Amen? All right, it says in 2 Samuel chapter 6, Again, David gathered all the choice men of Israel, 30,000, and David arose and went with all the people who were with him, from Bailey, Judah, to bring up from there the Ark of God, whose name is called by the name the Lord of Hosts, who dwells between the cherubim. So they set the Ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ohio, so it's not Ohio, it's a different name, Ohio, the sons of Abinadab drove the new cart, and they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, accompanying the Ark of God. And Ohio went before the Ark. Then David and all the house of Israel played music before the Lord on all kinds of instruments, of fir, wood, on harps, on stringed instruments, on tambourines, on sistrums, and on cymbals. And when they came to Nachon's, Nachos, I don't know how to pronounce that one, threshing floor, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. Then the anger of the Lord was aroused against Uzzah, and God struck him there for his error, and he died there by the ark of God. And David became angry, notice, because of the Lord's outbreak against Uzzah, and he called the name of this place Perez-Uzzah to this day. David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David would not move the ark of the Lord with him into the city of David, but David took it aside into the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, for three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. Now it was told King David, saying, The Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with gladness. And so it was when those bearing the ark of the Lord had gone six paces, so remember that number, that he sacrificed oxen and fatted sheep. Then David danced before the Lord with all his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting with the sound of the trumpet. Now as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michal, Saul's daughter, looked through a window and saw King David leaping and whirling before the Lord. And she despised him in her heart. So they brought the ark of the Lord and set it in, the, in its place in the midst of the tabernacle that David had erected for it. Then David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering burnt offerings and peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. Then he distributed among all the people, among the whole 
multitude of Israel, both the women and the multitude of both the women and the men, to everyone. Here's what they got: a loaf of bread, a piece of meat, and a cake of raisins. So all the people departed, everyone to his house. Then David returned to bless his household. And Michal, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How glorious was the king of Israel today, uncovering himself in the eyes of the maids of the servants, and one of the base fellows shamelessly uncovers, as one of the base fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. So David said to Michal, It was before the Lord who chose me instead of your father and all his house to appoint me rule over the people of the Lord, over Israel. Therefore I will play music before the Lord, and I will be even more undignified than this, and I will be humble in my own sight. But as for the maidservants of whom you have spoken, by them I will be held in honor. Therefore Michal, the daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. Okay, so we read this, and it just seems so shocking to us to read about Uzzah's death. But it was also shocking to David, because we know David had this desire to bring God to the center of the nation of Israel. And so he wanted to bring the ark back. He wanted to get it back from the, from the Philistines, who took control over it because they sort of thought of it like a divine rabbit's foot, a good luck charm. And so they took it from the nation of Israel, thinking it would bring them good luck. And it brought nothing but trouble to the Philistines. And so they let the Israelites have it back, but they just kind of left it, just kind of parked it at this guy's house, Abinadab. And Uzzah with this, was the guy's son, Abinadab's son. And so for three decades, it sat there. And David tells us of his longing to see the ark, which symbolized the presence of God back in Israel. David writes in Psalm 132 about how he couldn't sleep and he couldn't eat because he just longed to see God's presence in the heart of the nation of Israel. He wanted the ark restored. He wanted there to be joy and gladness that would come from the presence of God for them all to tap into. And so he went to this family that had been for three decades, taking care of the ark. And Abinadab's son Uzzah had this idea. Let's bring the ark back in style. Not how it's supposed to be carried. Let's do it like the Philistines did it. In modern day, it'd be like putting it on a sports car to drive it somewhere. Exodus 25 specifically prohibited any method of transportation for the ark of the covenant that was not two poles carried by four dudes. And not just any dudes, but descendants of Moses, Levites. That was the only way it was to be transported. But Uzzah decided to put the ark on a cart, which is how the Philistines transported it. And then worse, when it began to tip over, as the oxen stumbled, he reached out his hand. And as he did, God struck him on the spot, and he died. And it seemed so harsh, right? It seems like, whoa, God has some anger issues. God didn't even get a warning. But the reality is, this is the tip of a much bigger iceberg in Uzzah's life that we're seeing here. You see, Uzzah had spent the last 30 years guarding the ark. He knew the rules. He understood all of these things. The problem was he had begun to feel self-important, which is easy to do when you've been given an important job. It's the easiest thing in the world. God has given us an important job of carrying the message of Jesus into the world, but we never must must never confuse the important job we've been given with, the, with an inflated sense of self-importance. Uzzah presents, represents a prideful religious spirit. Eugene Peterson puts it very well. He said, Uzzah is the person who has God in a box 
and officially assumes responsible for keeping God safe from the mud and dust of the world. Men and women keep showing up to take it upon themselves to protect God from the vulgarities of sinners and the ignorance of common people. Uzzah's death wasn't sudden. It was years in the making. You see, Uzzah had adopted a prideful religious spirit with duty gradually suffocating the spirit of praise and faith and worship in his life. And his reaction to put his hand out and take care of God, I got this God, sort of, I don't, I don't need to do the things you've called me to do. He's kind of going through the motions, but there was no reality on the inside. But here's the truth. A religion you can control has no power to save you. There was no life. Uzzah was in control, right? He reached out his hand to, to catch God because God was going to fall. Let me tell you something. You don't need a God who you have to catch. You want a God that can catch you. You want a God you, who can hold you. You do not want a God you have to keep from falling over. And so Uzzah's death, which had been for years slowly unfolding, finally became permanent. David's horrified. David's caught in the middle. David had the best intentions. He's just this shepherd kid who loves God with his whole heart, trying to be the king. And he's throwing this party, and he's getting the ark back. And he sees Uzzah's got this cart. He's like, I don't, I don't know what that does. I'm not sure that's how it's supposed to work. But Uzzah probably knows. Then all of a sudden, Uzzah's dead. And he's like, party's canceled. This got very real. And the text said he was angry at God, which shows us some things. It shows us that God wasn't just waiting for someone to blow it so that he could smite them with his judgment. If God was angry, then wouldn't he have dealt with David here when he was angry at God? Right? If, if touching the ark was irreverent, wouldn't you think getting angry with God would be even more irreverent? David's mad. David's confused. David doesn't understand. And God does nothing but pour out blessings. And that's because God can handle your emotions. He's big enough to handle your frustration, even when you're confused, even when you're hurting. And so David leaves the ark at Obed-Edom's house, and God just starts pouring out blessing there. He's so good, he blesses even when he's ignored. David hears about the blessing that's going down, and he's like, okay, I'm going to get me some of that. So David says, all right, let's do this again. But I learned something. He took some time to read Exodus 25. He's like, y'all bring the poles so we can carry the ark properly. So now they're ready. All right, take two. Here we go. So they begin to take a step. One, two, three, four, five, six. David says, stop. Stops them right, right there dead in their tracks. Hold that ark perfectly still. And he has a sacrifice brought in. And the sacrifice is then offered to God. And the thing about a sacrifice is that before it was offered up, hands would be placed upon the head of the animal. And ceremonially, all of the sins of those who were offering this up would be transferred upon it. This animal became a substitute. It was saying there's a price to be paid for what I've done. And instead of me bearing it out, thank you God that it's transferred to this substitute. The picture of the cross The whole system of sacrifices was looking forward to the day when Jesus would hang on the cross. And as he hung there, Isaiah says, the sins of us all were laid upon him. God looked at him who had never sinned as though he he had committed all sin. 
so that he might look at us who have committed sin and see the righteousness of God. He was our sin bearer. You see, David realized the problem with was Uzzah had this religious formality. Uzzah had this deadness on the inside. He was putting God on his little cart. David said, no, I realize the only way I can stand before God, the only way that we can have the, the presence of God is if someone deals with our sin nature. If someone, if someone deals with our heart. So what he was doing was pointing forward to the cross. And he, it was significant that he had this take place on the sixth step. Because you see, seven in the Bible represents completion or fullness. For six days, God created the universe. On the seventh day, he rested. David referenced the number seven when he described the perfect nature of God's word. He said it was like gold refined seven times. David understood what seven meant. David was saying the sixth step is a place where the sacrifice is offered. He's saying there can be no completion, no fullness without forgiveness. There cannot be anything accomplished without God's power. That's the only way that any of us can have a right relationship with God. It's not about us just being good enough and checking boxes. It's all about someone who has done nothing wrong, but who is willing to pay for our sins so that we can be whole. And only then can there be that seventh step. Only then can there be that wholeness and the peace on the inside that every single one of us need. And when the sixth step and then the sacrifice and then the seventh step were finally taken, then the music began to play again. And David, he began to dance. But as he danced, he realized there's a problem. He was wearing his royal garments. That wouldn't do. Because he realized that he was a king, little K, but he was not the king of kings. And when you realize your sins have been paid for, when you realize that you've been forgiven, not because of anything you can do, but because the king of kings substituted himself for you, boy, all that's left to do is dance. All that's left to do is let the joy move your body. You're no longer preoccupied with what do people think about me. David just began to dance. And David didn't just dance, he danced with all his might. He was part of the parade. He was part of the story. He was part of helping bring that ark back into the center of the city, in the center of the nation, so more people could experience it. So more people could know what joy is to be found in the right relationship with God. And then you see this little footnote at the end of that. It says, As David was dancing, his wife Michal was watching from a window and was not pleased In fact, the text says she despised David when she saw that he was dancing around wearing only this linen ephod. I think we kind of have this idea of maybe David like dancing in his tidy whities right? And really, a linen ephod was not like tidy whities Because I think if David was dancing with all his might, leaping and bounding in little linen man panties, there would probably be good reason for Michal to be embarrassed, Right? The way it worked was his royal garment would have been this outer outfit that displayed this this ornate symbol of power and strength and majesty. And underneath it would have been this simple tunic, which was his ephod. So let me translate it into our culture. David took off his tuxedo, threw on some jeans and a t-shirt. He was wearing the simple attire of a servant or a day laborer. He's just one of the people now. He realizes, I might have the title of sovereign over the nation, but I do so under the authority of the king here. 
And so David is adorning himself with the attire of a servant. Because he realizes, before God, that's all any of us are, whatever we've been called to do. And then the meal he sent them all out with at the end of the day is interesting. He sent every single person, regardless of their station or class, with all these delicacies. He was basically saying, I, as the king, am dressing now like a servant because I realize I'm just one of the people who are sons and daughters. But he also realizes, just as it also causes us to want to humble ourselves to the lordship and power of Jesus, it also elevates us all. And he saw that every single person, regardless of the job that they had, the money in the bank, or what station in life they were in, if they would embrace a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, they would all be elevated to be sons and daughters of the King of Kings. So you're saying, y'all get to eat like royalty today. Because in Jesus' name, you're a chosen generation. You're a royal priesthood. And when we pick up that servant's towel, when we embrace the lowly position, we are elevated as sons and daughters of the King of Kings to be used in great and spectacular ways. And every single thing I just mentioned to you, McCall hated. McCall despised. And that's why when David came home, there was this dark cloud inside of his home. So I just want to stop and say that, there, that God doesn't just look at what we do outside. He looks at what happens in your house. Okay? If you say, I'm going to do great things for God, but you're mean at home, I'll let you know right now, if it ain't working at home, honey, it ain't working. And God doesn't just look at what you do in business or what you do in philanthropy, what you do in ministry. He looks at how you treat your kids, how you treat your brother, how you treat your spouse, how you treat your mama. And so as David comes home, there's this issue. She's like, oh, well, how undignified you were today in the sight of all those servants wearing your linen ephod. What's she saying? Well, if you want to understand the meaning, you have to see the title given to her. Three times in this passage, she was referred to not as David's wife, but as what? Daughter of Saul. And it's for a reason every single time. Because it shows us that that's the lens and the worldview that she's processing things through. She's not seeing herself as the wife of David. She's seeing herself as the daughter of Saul. And Saul would never have done what David's doing. Saul cared so much about appearances. Saul cared so much about being important and being elevated. She did not like that because she was basically Uzzah 2.0. And that's the interesting thing about the Old Testament. It often revisits the same themes. As we read 2 Samuel chapter 6, what we see is the same theme being revisited from several different angles. So we saw what deadness led to eventually long-term in Uzzah. And now we're seeing the same thing popping up in the heart of McCall. She didn't mind God being there. He didn't mind him showing up. But she would have been much more content for David to just be walking. All right, don't get, get, don't get too crazy, right, about all this. Like this leaping. She's like, I don't mind a little bit of God, but we don't need to get carried away with it. Let me tell you something. A religion you can control has no power to save you. God didn't just come to affect your Sunday schedule. He came to radically turn your life upside down. Or more to the point, right side up. To invade every part, every square inch of your life and soul. Where you, like David, leap and dance and sing to him with all your heart. 
But McCall, too, wanted to keep God on a cart. And in the same way we saw Uzzah's death, we have to go forward and see that it says that she had no children from that day forward to the rest of your life. You see, there was a death in her in a story where she could have been involved in the lineage of Jesus. God instead chose Bathsheba. David and Bathsheba, their story involves sin, their story involves pain, their story involves regret. But those things became the fertile ground where there could be humility, where there could be repentance, where there could be gratitude for a God so good he washes our sins away. So God in your life is not looking for like regal perfection of a McCall or an Uzzah. It looks great on the outside, but the inside there's death. On the inside there's nothing but emptiness and pride and contempt. God's looking for that broken spirit that's willing to obey him, even if it's imperfectly, and trust him for the salvation only he can bring. So here are the lessons and takeaways for future you. And um, as we continue our journey, because future you is an ongoing assignment, and the first is, don't let failure stop you. David started in 2 Samuel 6 with some great intentions, right? Hey, I want to bring the ark back. That's awesome. That's amazing. No sooner he done that, done that than somebody's dying. He's like, everything's terrible. And I love that. It took him some time, but three months later, he's like, you know, I'm going to give it another shot. I'm going to give it another try. And we're not going to always get it right. We're not going to always get it right in marriage. We're not going to always get it right in relationship with God or sharing our faith or anything. There's going to be mistakes that are made. But you've got to keep trying. And I just see such power in David showing up again and again and giving it another shot. So thanks be to God that's not about our perfection. It's about Jesus' perfection. So we just got to keep trying. Secondly, I want to tell you that you're never more vulnerable than in victory. Okay? David gets the ark into the city successfully. Everybody's got their raisins. Uh, goes home. Bam. Sucker punch waiting for him at home. I like how Charles Spurgeon put it. He said, pirates always look out for loaded vessels. They don't show up to rob empty ships, right? Pirates look out for loaded vessels. And the enemy will almost always come after a mountain high. So let me warn you, as you make changes in your life, as you press into God and make some new good habits, that's when you want to be on guard. The enemy will try and mess with you there. David had this opportunity to get discouraged, going home and seeing McCall throwing shade at him. But instead he goes, you haven't seen nothing yet. I'll get even more undignified than that. He said, I'm going to ratchet up my passion. You're trying to keep me back from showing passion? He's saying, I see the enemies attacking this. So when he comes in and tries to snuff out your fire, don't take it as a sign you're doing something wrong, but as evidence that you're doing the right thing. And then lastly, let me say that, um, that what you see, so this is a takeaway truth, what you see is what you get. Or you could say it this way, what you become is what you behold. They all looked, McCall, Uzzah, David, all looked at the same box, the ark, but they all saw different things. McCall saw the king humiliating himself. Uzzah saw a way to elevate himself. David saw the presence of God. So what do you see in front of you? When you look at your kids, when you look at your job, when you look at your life, you can choose to just see 
normal, average, ordinary, the things you're not thankful for, things you would change if you could. Or you can choose in the midst of it to, see, to say, I see God's hand in this. I see he's got a plan. I see he's up to something. So let's live lives of faith. Let's live lives of belief. Let's walk around always excited, always aware. Believe that God is up to something. He's not forgotten about you. He's not abandoned you. So let's trust God and believe we will see things complete and see things in fullness of Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. Let's take communion together. Uh, if you didn't get the elements on your way in, do we have somebody that can pass those out? Could you just raise up your hand if, you, if one of the ushers will bring them to you? Everybody good? So at the heart of the Christian faith is gift. Gift of breath, gift of life, gift of forgiveness, gift of resurrection. And to be a Christian is to choose to orient your entire being around these gifts. This is why the way we see is so important. Because complaining, whining about things, having a sense of entitlement, having a victim mentality, having a religious spirit, having a scorecard of all the ways in which that person got a bunch of stuff that you didn't get, or this person got all the wonderful things that came their way and you got passed over, these sorts of attitudes simply cannot exist in the center of the Christian faith because it's about gift. Gratitude and anger don't exist in the same place. Thankfulness and a victim mentality don't exist in the same place. One will push the other out. And that's why communion is so important because it's about remembering the gift repeatedly reminding ourselves of the gift of salvation through the broken body and shed blood of Jesus. In James it says, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. That's what we remember. So we take a moment right now, and figuratively we stop at the sixth step, say thank you for being our substitute. Thank you that our sins were laid upon you so that we can have the righteousness of God. We know, God, that fullness of life comes only through you. Amen. Go ahead and take communion when you're ready, and then I'll pray. If the ministry team wants to make their way forward, I'm going to pray. And after I pray, if there's anyone who would like some one-on-one prayer with someone from our prayer team, come forward. Right? If the Holy Spirit is nudging you to get some ministry, listen to that, trust that. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you for what you've done and are doing in our hearts. I just pray a, sp- a special blessing on the heart of every person who is choosing to believe by faith that you're there. Who says, I want to see, I want the, the presence of God in the midst of my marriage, in my medical difficulty that I'm facing or my job that I've had for a long time, I want to see you in the midst of it, God. I want you to open my eyes. I just want to encourage you in the middle of this prayer that God has not sent the gospel into the world on carts. The gospel is always carried on the shoulders of people. You have been given the assignment of carrying the name of Jesus on your shoulders, carrying the name of Jesus into your sports team, into your school, into your neighborhood, And God has given you the strength and the grace to carry that well, to steward it well, so that more people might know it. So I pray that you're blessed and strengthened by God to carry his name this week. 
Lord, just help us to dance in your presence. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Bless you, Upper Room family. Come forward if you'd like some prayer. If not, you're free to go. Have a great week.